nothing better, no one better to stare in awe and wonder at than our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, So we're going to be talking about Behold the Lamb of God. All right, I want to start off, um, we, we know this celebration time now as Easter, but um, in Israel and many other places, this is called Passover, and in the scriptures, what we're celebrating today is Passover. The scripture distinguishes two very special Passovers, and so we're going to have a look at two of them today and unpack a whole lot of stuff. But what is Passover? Some of you will know, some of you maybe aren't so familiar with it. So we're going to have a look at it together. So let's go all the way back to Exodus. Who brought their Bibles with them today? Did anyone bring a Bible or an electronic or paper version? Feel free to follow along with me because um, there's something wonderful, absolutely wonderful about seeing it for yourself. I was reading um, an account of some people who live in Russia, some believers who live in Russia, and they didn't own a Bible, and they would, ab- would be able to tune in to foreign radio stations sometimes, and the people would be sharing a scripture, and they would write it down, and they'd say, I found another scripture today. I learned one more, because they didn't have a Bible. So how blessed are we, hey, to have our own Bibles? All right, Exodus chapter 1, verse 12 to 3, Um, and I'm going to read this, Uh, verse 1 to (laughs) 3. Let me try again. Exodus 12, verse 1 to 3. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Now, let me just pause and tell you what was leading up to this moment. We have Moses on the scene. Um, He had not been on the scene for 40 years. Um, Prior to that, he was a prince of Egypt And um, because he killed someone, he ended up fleeing from Egypt, being in the wilderness. God appears to him and gives him a mandate, go back and set my people free. So over a million slaves to Pharaoh who were Hebrew um, Israelite slaves. And Moses was commissioned and mandated to go and set them free. And God said, I'll be with you. And God began to judge the gods of Egypt that the land had put their trust in. And so each plague, there were 10 plagues. Each plague was a direct judgment on a God of Egypt. They worshipped the Nile River. They worshipped the the Nile God. And so that was the first plague and it goes on. Now we're up to plague number 10 is about to come. And God is initiating something he's calling a Passover. So he's telling um, the Israelites, this is going to be your first month. And you need to go and select a lamb, one for each household. Now I'm in verse 5. It says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. 
And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses where they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh on that night roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and entrails. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So shall you eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you while I strike the land of Egypt." This is the first Passover. Now, we have hindsight. We can look back on this event, and maybe it makes a lot more sense to us. But what a strange thing for these Israelites to hear God tell them to do. Doesn't that seem a little bit weird to be painting blood over your doorway? Like, imagine if someone did that today. What would you think? <laughs> right? That is a little odd, isn't it? Um, and we kind of go, oh, that, yeah, that's the story. Um, but And they had no idea. God didn't tell them, actually, this is a practice run of another event that's going to happen many years down the track. He just asked them to be obedient and do what he said for the first Passover. They had to take a lamb for their house. This lamb, this innocent lamb, had to be slain and its blood applied to the household. And only those who were underneath the blood that was applied were safe from the plague of death. So many symbolisms here. That night, it says, a great cry arose throughout the land of Egypt. There wasn't one household unaffected in Egypt. There was death everywhere. The firstborn of every home, gone except where the blood was on the doorpost. They were safe. They were saved. And so that is the first Passover. And God says, I want you to do this in every generation. Because he knew another Passover was coming. Okay. Oh, I did have the scriptures up there. Sorry about that. All right, the second Passover, we're going to have a look at that. Now, this isn't the second one in the scripture. They observed Passover every single year. But this is the second one that I want to particularly mention today. And another lamb would be selected and slain. Let's have a look at Matthew 26, uh, 19 to 20 and then 26 to 29. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they were eating, the Lord took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. 
Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. All right, the Jews had always celebrated Passover. So for some of the disciples, who knows, they might have been in their early 20s, um, they would have had at least 20 years experience of having a Passover. But this Passover with Jesus was really different. Normally, they would set out a chair for Elijah because the last word they had from God in the Old Testament in the book of Malachi was that before the coming of the Messiah, one would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah and turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the hearts of the children back to the fathers. So every year at Passover, they set out a chair for Elijah in case this was the year that the Messiah would come. And this year at Passover, as they're having the unleavened bread and they're partaking of the roasted lamb, Jesus does something different. He, he breaks the bread. That's not different. But then he says, take, eat. This is my body. Now, we thought blood on a doorpost was weird. This just got to a whole nother level. It's like, Jesus, you've said some strange things, but this has got to be right up there. I mean, what are you talking about? We're having Passover. Then he talks about that he's about to shed his blood for the remission of sins. I don't think they got it at that moment, that this was the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, the one Lamb who would shed his blood and never, ever need another one again. This was the ultimate Passover lamb. This was the one that all these years they'd been practicing and waiting for who wouldn't just cover them once for one year or one day, but who would forever remove their sins. What a moment. I, I can't even imagine sitting there at that table with Jesus and what they must have been thinking. This is strange. Jesus, what are you saying? You're going to shed your blood for us? And then he makes a beautiful promise. I won't drink of the cup of the vine again until I drink it with you in my father's kingdom. The Galileans, that his disciples were from Galilee, the Galileans knew all about that. That was a promise of a wedding. When a bridegroom and a bride uh, were to get engaged, they would drink from the cup and then the bridegroom wouldn't drink from it again until their wedding day. So Jesus was saying, I'm making a promise. I'm going to die for you, and I'm going to come back for you. What a moment. Well, let's keep going with the story. So from here, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then it, it really is just, I mean, I read it and I think, wow. How many of you really don't like being falsely accused? Does it annoy you if someone accuses you of something you haven't done? It's, and the immediate reaction is to defend yourself, isn't it? Go, excuse me, that's not true. That's not the story. That's not the, this, this series of events. You are, you know, twisting the truth. But here we have Jesus, who is the truth, 
being put on a false trial. In fact, I, I love one of the Gospels when it tries to describe his trial because it said they had paid witnesses to come and testify against him and none of them could get their stories straight. Like, he, no, you weren't supposed to say that. And then, oh, he said it wrong too. And, I mean, it was just a shambles. And Jesus is being falsely accused of all sorts of things. But it said in Isaiah that as a lamb is led to the slaughter and says not a word, so Jesus opened not his mouth. And that's what, you know, Pilate and them marvel. They're like, aren't you going to defend yourself? I mean, Jesus could have, you know, easily come up with, the most wise and most amazing and intelligent things to say to defend himself. But he said not a word. And he goes through this whole process. They mock him. You know, they slap him and go, oh, well, if you're really the Christ, which one of us hit you? <laughs> and, you know, they're having fun at his expense. They beat him. They flog him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. And all of this he willingly goes through. Because he knows that he is the Passover lamb. He knows that his entire purpose for coming was this moment. And then we come to where he's carrying his cross to the place called Golgotha. And it says that because he was so badly beaten, he wasn't even strong enough to carry the cross. Someone else had to be enlisted to help him. And they finally get him to Golgotha. They drive nails in his feet and his hands and they raise that cross and thump it into the ground. Let's look at this. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Can you imagine hanging on a cross and watching the soldiers fighting over who's going to have your clothing. They are completely oblivious that the man hanging there is hanging there in their place. That he's actually taking their punishment. And he's willingly doing it. One of the things he said from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. What an incredible love. I can't even fathom being in that much agony and having that kind of love pour out like I'm gonna be really honest to you I stumped my toe on the suitcase this morning and and I wasn't thinking loving thoughts toward that suitcase or anything else in that moment I was like oh, oh my toe and I mean that's a toe Jesus is in agony in every part of his body and he's not sitting there going oh I just couldn't he's going Father, forgive them. They don't understand. I mean, this is pure love hanging on the cross. It's unreal. What is the significance about the lamb? We don't really have 
a lot to do with lamb in our society except that the great Aussie barbecue, you know, it's got to be lamb. But unless you're Carol and you have little lambs. But I must say that I don't have a lot to do with lambs in my life. But there was something incredibly significant about the lamb. In both Passovers, it was the means of salvation. Firstly, for a nation and with Jesus, the means of salvation for all who would come, the entire world. You know, two of the most major events in history centered on the lamb. That first Passover. Who's ever heard of a whole nation, a whole nation leaving one country in one day? It's unheard of. And not only that, slaves. Unreal. And the second Passover. Well, we went from BC to AD, didn't we? But I want to tell you that long before either of these events, the lamb appears many, many years as the one who was slain, many years before that first Passover. Okay. Oh, I did it again. Look at that. All right. Let me go back. Okay. Let me... I'm not used to notes, you see. I had to make notes for those of you following online. So I get a little bit confused. All right. All right, yes. So let's finish, let's finish the story of the Passover lamb. So I'll just read it from here. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabakshanthi. Sorry to any Jewish people listening. Um, That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and scared many, I mean appeared to many. (laughs) Oh, can just imagine, you know, you look just like my old Aunt Martha. But, um, oh, that's it. <laughs> wow. Do I have the next one? No. After that, it says the soldier standing by Jesus said, truly, this was the son of God. I'm like, I wonder what, was it three hours of darkness in the middle of the day? You know, because that's like from um, midday to three o'clock is when it went dark. Or, or was it the earthquake and the rock splitting and, you know, maybe that was a good indication he was the son of God. Or maybe it was just that moment when he stood and beheld him and went, this is way more than a normal crucifixion. There is something. This is God dying here in front of me. Wow. 
<sighs> I want to look at this, what Peter tells us, 1 Peter 1, 18 to 21. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Remember that first Passover lamb had to be without blemish and without spot? This is who Jesus is, the Passover lamb. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. I want to point out to you those words in verse 20. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. I'm about to show you something this morning that has literally kept me awake at night. Because I... Um, I don't even have words. Wait till you see it. All right, okay. You'll see what I mean. It's amazing. All right, before the foundation of the world. Keep that in your head. Let's look at this one. Revelation 13, 8, right? It's talking about all who dwell on the earth will worship him. It's talking about the Antichrist, the one who sets himself up as God during the tribulation of Revelation. Those whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, we thought Jesus was slain when he came to earth, and he was. But an event happened long before his physical arrival. The scripture tells us he was slain from the foundation of the world. Now, is that possible? Could he be physically slain before he was even physically here? What do you think? How? Did they enact this in heaven before he came to earth? But it says he died once for all. But the scripture doesn't lie. So how was he slain from the foundation of the world? You ready for this? I'm going to talk about two numbers for a minute. I want to go back to our first Passover. Let's have a look at this. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. So ten is my first number. Verse six. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Fourteen is my second number. You're so clever. How would you, you knew that? Um, 10 and 14, both of them relate to the selection of and death of the lamb. Now, when did it say the lamb was slain? Do you remember? When from? From the foundation of the world. So let's see if we can find this. Let's go back to the foundation of the world and see if we can find the lamb slain. So let's go back to Genesis where it all began. And, of course, we'll go right to the very start, chapter 1, 
verse 1. I want you to keep those numbers in your mind. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can you see a lamb slain there? All right. Neither could I. But that's because I'm reading it in English. Let me show you this. Sorry. So that's it in the King James Version in English. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now in Hebrew, but Hebrew reads from left to right. Bereshit is the first word. For in the beginning, Elohim, or Elohim, for God. Do you know what that word Elohim means? Power of all powers. We read in the beginning, God, they hear in the beginning, the power of all powers. Wow. The lamb slain is in this Hebrew. Are there any kids left in the room? No? I've got some older kids. You can all be my kids. It's all good. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to count to the 10th letter, and that little dash is a yod. So it is a letter, a Hebrew letter. Okay? I want you to count... And tell me which one you come up with. What does it look like? Like a cross, like an X? That's the Aleph. See there, I've made it a bit bigger. So you can see which one's number 10. And what happened on the 10th day? What did they have to do? They selected the lamb. Watch this. That letter is Aleph, the very first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The letter Aleph, there's so much I could share about Aleph, but I'll, I'll try and keep to just what I've got here. Okay, Aleph, the very first letter, Jesus referenced himself this way in the book of Revelation. I am the Aleph, the Alpha. The beginning. Jesus directly called himself the Aleph. So the tenth letter in of that very first sentence of the Bible, in the beginning God, we find Jesus represented as the Aleph. The ancient pictograph, can you see where it says pictograph? If you have a look. The ancient Paleo-Hebrew was pictures. The Aleph was of an ox. An ox represents strength, leadership, authority. The letter Aleph is the father of the alphabet, whose original pictograph, I just said, represents an ox, strength and leader. Its numerical value is one, and also 1,000, and it is a silent letter. Remember he opened not his mouth? Aleph, therefore, is preeminent in its order 
and altitudes to the ineffable mysteries of the oneness of God. Indeed, the word aluf, derived from the very name of this letter, means master or Lord. Isn't that amazing? The tenth letter in the first sentence of the Hebrew Bible, we have the Aleph appearing. God. Okay, but it gets even more amazing. All right, we're going to talk at Gematria. So because Hebrew doesn't have numbers, they use their letters for numbers, uh, every word has a numerical value, which is what Gematria is. So the basic Gematria for Aleph is one, indicating the one and only God who is master of the universe. Note, however, that the gematria for the parts of the letter Aleph add up to 26, Yod plus Yod plus Vav. How many letters are in our alphabet, by the way? <laughs> 26, I just found that so amazing. This is the same letter as the sacred name yah heh We often call it in English Yahweh, but you will never hear a Jew say that. It's called the unpronounceable name of God. And many times they will not even utter it. It is so holy. But this letter Aleph has the same number as the sacred name Yahweh, Also indicating a link between the Aleph and God himself. This is also demonstrated in Exodus 3, 14 to 15, where the Lord reveals his name to Moses Ayek, Asha, Ayek. Oh, sorry, Esha, Iyak. I am that I am. The Aleph. Absolutely amazing. And there he showed up in the 10th verse. Now, what was the other number I mentioned? 14. Okay. I want to show you another Hebrew letter, Mem. Sorry, let me, let me go back to L. There. Okay, can anyone see? So if we've got the 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, see that kind of squarish, half-bent squarish shape? That's our mem. Now, because it's at the end of a word, it's closed, but often a mem in the middle of a word is open at the top. It has a little doorway. So let me go back now and we'll have a look at Mem. Okay. All right. So here we go. This is what was on 14, remember? What happened on the 14th day? The lamb was slain. Okay, so the letter Mem is the 13th letter of the alphabet. It has the numerical value of 40. Do you know 40 stands for trials, temptations, sufferings in the Bible? The pictograph for Mem looks like a wave of water, whereas the classical Hebrew script is constructed of a calf and a vav beside it. Note that the gematria for these components equals the value for the divine name, 
There it is again. It also has the same value. If I go back one, sorry. See, there's the divine name. Yahvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehvehv
On day three, he rose. Reinhard Bonnke tells the story of um, an Indian restaurant owner that uh, he used to go to this restaurant and they struck up quite a friendship. And he was always telling him about his, his Hindu gods and the leader of his faith. And one day he said to Reinhardt, I'm going, I'm going away for a few weeks. He said, are you? He said, yes, I'm going to the grave site of the founder of my faith. He said, I can hardly wait. And Reinhardt said to him, well, I want you to do me a favour. When you get there, I want you to remember everything you see and tell me when you come back. He said, oh, I will, I will tell you all about it. So some weeks later, Reinhard went to the restaurant again. He was home. He was radiant. He was so happy. Reinhard said, did you see the grave? He said, oh, I saw the grave. It was magnificent. It's lined with gold and precious gems. It sparkles in the sunlight. I've never seen anything like it. And Reinhard said to him, wow, he said, that's amazing. He said, but you know, the grave of my Jesus, there's no one there. You see, this man was excited, but the founder of his faith was still in that grave. With all that gold, he was dead. But our Jesus, you go to his tomb in Israel, I've been there, and there's nothing to see. Empty. Nada. Because as the angel said to Mary, he's not there. He's risen. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? You're not going to find Jesus in an artifact or an ancient tomb. You will find him where you find living people. Because he is alive. And he shows up just as he did on day three. The mem appears, the hay. Whew. So good. Let me find this part so I don't turn around. Okay. The picture graph, I love it for hay. Can you see the little picture graph? So cool. It's a man with his arms raised. Oh, he's been raised. Do you get it? You know, raised. Whereas the classical Hebrew script is constructed of two valves of the dalet and an unattached inverted yod that functions as the foot of the letter. The meaning of hey is look or behold. The lamb of God. How awesome. All right. Someone moved their hands on the clock on me. Okay. So now I'm going to have to go into high speed. All right. I want to finish with this. These are the words of Jesus straight out of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, 17 to 18. And when I saw him... I fell at his feet as dead. This is John describing the moment he sees the lamb. But he laid his right hand on me saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first, the Aleph, 
and the last. I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Jesus preached himself happy. Don't you love it? He's like, I'm alive forever. Well, I've got to say it. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Woo. This is our God. This is our God. Revelation 5, 11 to 13. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. Wow. Forever and ever and ever. Now it's my turn to put an amen in there. Woo, amen. In verse 13, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and as such as in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Can I tell you something? The Bible tells us one day we will have resurrected bodies that will live forever. They will be brand new, which is great. I've got some parts that I think could have a bit of a restoration. We get brand new, wonderfully glorified bodies. But it says... In Jesus' glorified body, remember, Thomas, put your hands in the scars. When I realise this, that for eternity, we will see him as the lamb slain. Because he was right there at the very beginning. Those very first few letters, the lamb appears. And look at the name we say when we're in heaven. This is a, a, a snapshot of our future. People worshipping him around the throne. But they're still saying, worthy is the lamb. He is worthy forever. Would you stand to your feet with me today? The Bible tells us how to be saved how to encounter this living Jesus. And it's so simple. I want to take you through three ABCs. I won't do the elephant bet and delet because, um, a gimel, sorry. But I'll do the, the ABCs because we know them, right? A, Bible says we have to admit we're a sinner. You know, I actually found that really hard because I was brought up in a Christian family and I considered myself a good little girl. And trying to think that I had done anything really worthy of being punished for was hard. Because I felt like I was really good. I don't know why I felt like that. Because I look back and go, mm, I didn't mind telling a few whoppers. 
to mum. Not mind you, she always knew when I was lying, so I don't know why I tried. And I had a stinking attitude. I would fight with my sister. We fought over hair ties, serious stuff, you know. We fought over things that really mattered. But, I mean, I wasn't good. And God had to open my eyes. I had to admit, I was the one that put him on that cross. That lamb was slain for me. And then that's how A, admit you're a sinner and that's the hard one. But B is believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Do you believe that he died for you? Do you believe he was resurrected? Because if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, the scripture says you will be saved. And the C is even more simple. Confess with your mouth and commit. Commit. Commit to following him. Jesus looked at the disciples and he said, come follow me. And they would forsake everything and they would follow him. That's how simple it is to be saved. If you would just bow your heads with me this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to what you've heard. If you're in this room or if you're watching online and you say, Anita, I want salvation. I want to encounter the risen Jesus I want him in my life. I know I need him. I just want you to raise your hand because I want to pray with you this morning. It's not to embarrass you because I want to see you rescued from hell and given an eternal future with this great God. Just across this room, if you put your hands up now, we're just going to pray together. Thank you. And those online, feel free to raise your hand if you're watching at home. Let me pray with you. Why don't you say this after me, Lord Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I need your salvation. Cleanse me from my sins. I believe you died and rose again. And I commit to following you for the rest of my life. In the name of Jesus, amen. And amen. Awesome. Well, we have a very lively song to finish off with that wraps all this up together. And some of the words are this, he came, meaning Jesus, he saw and he conquered. He conquered death and hell. Amen. So while the, while the crew come on up, um, you can have a seat. Yeah. <laughs>